0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic, it's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Doing pretty well. How about yourself?
1: Oh, oh pretty good. I like cracking a joke right before we start recording.
0: I know. Um, I'm not going to lie, some beer almost came out my nose. <laughs>
1: People probably wonder why you always start the show laughing, and it's generally because of something I said right before. Yeah. And then I surprise you with, hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Exactly, yeah, thanks for setting me up. Uh, but, I mean, in all fairness, it doesn't take much to make me laugh, so there you go.
1: That's true.
0: Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's been a lovely day, for sure. The most adult thing that's ever happened to me happened today, and we got new windows in our house, and I was like a giddy school girl, so it was pretty funny.
1: <laughs> oh, very nice.
0: I know. Oh, see? Look how adult you are. You're like, mm, yeah. <laughs> new windows.
1: <laughs> like where those double-pane gas fill? Of course. Or...
0: Double-pane, double-hung, argon. <laughs> um. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Welcome to our old folks podcast
1: <laughs> yep next week we'll talk about uh we'll recap the last show we'll talk about smoking various meats in world war ii <laughs>
0: oh man i just made me want some barbecue uh okay <laughs> and see
1: these are the type of comments that you normally miss out on before the show
0: uh exactly uh this is a great segue talking about meats Because sometimes you need to salt a meat before you smoke it, right?
1: (laughs) That's kind of a stretch, but okay. We'll go with it.
0: (laughs) That's not a stretch at all. Do we need to review barbecuing? (laughs) Some people like a good dry rub, John. You'll get there. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh,
1: you know, first you told me that you wanted to talk about the Messian Salinity Crisis. Mm Mm-hmm. As a geophysicist, my first reaction was, the what?
0: (laughs) I know you fell asleep before I got that sentence out. It's okay.
1: (laughs) But after doing some research, I will go, hmm.
0: (laughs) Glad one of us did research on the show. I was going to (laughs) goo.
1: Well, there's some interesting... Ge- there was some seismic stuff. There was yes. some coring from a ship that went on. There, there was some interesting geophysics here.
0: Yes, there was. I just left that big blank there, so you could, you could talk about all that. I didn't want to steal your seismic thunder. But for everyone else who is still saying, hmm, what's this crisis we're talking about? Don't worry. It's not, you know, a current crisis yet.
1: <laughs> it's not a current science.
0: Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and if you're a student of the geologic time scale, you'll go, oh, yes, obviously, the Mycenaean, we're talking about Miocene times, right? People are saying that, right?
1: People are saying that, and maybe out of those, a couple are <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, so about six million years ago.
0: Yes. And mm-hmm. you're welcome, class. I don't make you memorize all of those different Time periods in between each epoch of the Cenozoic, but if you did, yeah, those
1: get pretty.
0: Yes, it's pretty crazy. When yes, you're exactly. Like sixty-five million years ago is all you need to know, right? Um, the paleoclimatist, paleoclimatist, paleoclimatologist. <laughs> there we go. In me. Did not like that joke because, yeah, there's a lot of ticky tacky to say in between. Well, us, and all I those. also
1: love that you just very nonchalantly did what I'm sure struck the majority of our listeners as odd and phrase it as six to five million years ago because <laughs> most people aren't used to thinking in reverse time.
0: <laughs> I do that so frequently, obviously, that the other way freaks me out now. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm like five to six. No, that's not not how we talk (laughs) yeah mm -hmm. so six to five million years ago the salty part of all of this that i was alluding to is the mediterranean sea dried up in fact it dried up a whole bunch of times in this time period and we've given this whole phenomenon the title of the mycenaean salinity crisis
1: Right. And, you know, you think about how do you desalinate water? Well, there's a lot of ways, but most often we just evaporate.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And we have salt left. Well, that's what the earth did to the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. and deposited these giant packets of salt, meters and meters thick.
0: We'll definitely talk about the geophysics of this in terms of um, what they used. But really, this is a geochemist, like, dream, right? (laughs) this is
1: oh yeah i'm sure there's isotopes and dells everywhere
0: so many dells everywhere (laughs) that's exactly right um we're not going to talk about that obviously (laughs) but (laughs) there's a lot of really cool geophysics that goes along with this it kind of follows up on um this show that we had a couple weeks ago where we were discussing the geochemistry of the nyaka mine right and it's also evaporites just like that and it might not, you may say, yeah, okay, it's really hot in the Mediterranean, so this isn't surprising that it dried up. But it didn't stay dried up. You know, at the um, 5.33 million-year mark, there was an event known as the Zanclean Flood. And that is where it actually started the Zanclean, which is the first stage of the Pleistocene. When we talk about the geologic time scale, all those little divisions in there are generally founded on some interesting tectonic, climatic, paleontological event. And so the end of the Mediterranean Sea drying up was there at 533, 5.33 million years ago in the Zanclean floods. Um, it's really fun to say. I really like to say <laughs> but I-, I can tell. Uh-huh. And we never dried up the Mediterranean since then. But if you just never precipitate into it or let rivers flow it, into it, it would dry up pretty fast within a thousand years because that area of the world, lots more evaporation than precipitation.
1: And I did enjoy when I was doing some research on this talking about how many thousands of cubic kilometers of water a year evaporated. <laughs>
0: It's when you get into those numbers, and I tell this to class because it's true. It's like you can't even; they don't even make sense, <laughs> right? Well, but
1: so it also makes me remember a demonstration that my high school chemistry teacher did.
0: Okay.
1: He had a very one of those very precise lab scales. Okay. You know, five six decimal places, mm-hmm. kind of microgram scales. Fancy. Very fancy. With a Petri dish of water and it had that air enclosure around it. So, you know, no moving air could influence the reading Mm -hmm. and had it sitting on a cart. And we could see the the reading from the scale. And you're supposed to write down the numbers at the beginning of class, maybe a few times. And then at the end. And I kind of just thought there's, it's a noisy scale. There's stuff going on. There's vibration and maybe it's not level. No. When you get microgram resolution on a Petri dish, you can watch water evaporate in a mass sense.
0: No kidding. In like an hour or something.
1: In a high school class period.
0: Wow. That's cool.
1: So you think about that, you think about, well, that's indoors in a climate controlled room Mm -hmm. that's very far from boiling in a Petri dish with no air moving over it. Okay, yeah, you could evaporate an ocean in a thousand years.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, especially when it's really hot, <laughs> really hot. Right. And climate plays into this a whole lot. Um, one of the cool things, which I will not mention anymore of because I'm not a paleontologist, when you get rid of water, you open up a lot of pathways for different animal migrations, and this certainly happened. At during the Miocene, during these different stages. And that's actually some of the evidence for the fact that the Mediterranean dried up was not only the animal bones, but the animals that migrated in between Africa and Europe because you had this salt pan that they could walk across then. And so that's, that's pretty cool too, especially for people that are studying like Cenozoic mammals.
1: Yeah, you don't see one of these things before, and you do after.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they didn't swim there, most likely. (laughs) And they had to get there somewhere. So there's a lot of evidence that supports this Mycenaean sea salinity crisis. And, I mean, there are still papers being written about the causes, which we'll get to later, but we can talk certainly about this evidence of this. And if you were, I haven't been to the Mediterranean. Have you been to the Mediterranean? I have not. Yes. So, well, what I know is that there are lots of evaporites there. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And we're talking, like, over a million cubic kilometers, again, a number that's huge, of evaporites. And they have to come from somewhere. And there's a bunch of different evaporites. And that's some of this evidence for these, like, multiple episodes of dehydration and rehydration. When we talked about Nyaka, we talked about how, you know, different um, evaporites will come out of solution first, and then it changes the geochemistry of the water, which makes a different evaporite. And that is certainly seen in these stratified evaporites in the Mediterranean basin, is that you have a lot of different geochemistries, meaning that a lot of different episodes um, over this time period of deposition of these evaporites occurred.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. And so during these multiple depositions, we're just concentrating more and more salt, right? Because we evaporate the salt out and something happens. We bring more salt water in. We close it off. We evaporate the water out. There's more salt. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: we're just very much concentrating... uh, salt there and making these little bodies of water, maybe that are left inside, you know, very salty lakes, that sort of thing.
0: Right. And that's a, I love that this is, a, I don't love, but it's a very interesting fight to me is because there's a lot of discussion about just like you said, John, those little salty lakes. So did the whole thing evaporate at once or were there like little pools that were left and they evaporated differently, which you should be able to geochemically sort of tell the difference here. And so, I would say
1: probably that one.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, so that's a big discussion still about what was going on during the Miocene in terms of this synchronous versus diachronous evaporation. You know, were there all these little pools or was everything getting evaporated, like, all together at once. Um, and, and those are the two schools. There are still just lots of fights about this. And I love that one of the things that we did was like, okay, well, we've got to, you know, core this stuff to figure this out. You can't figure it out until we can, like, look at all of it. And this is where some of the cool geophysics also comes in, because you can see evidence of these evaporites and the different layers of the evaporites around the Mediterranean today, um, because the Mediterranean is smaller than it has been in the past. And so you can see some of it, but if you want to get to how many of the, these cycles there are, you have to go get the rocks for it.
1: Yeah, well, and we decided it would be interesting to core and knew where to core because of seismic. And seismic in the seventies, I believe, found this thing they called it very creatively the M reflector.
0: <laughs> which
1: was the reflector on top of this big salt package.
0: hmm The M reflector. Yeah. You guys. <laughs> um, so yep, so we went in here, it was just great, was because one of the person or one of the scientists that were on this particular leg of the deep sea drilling program was Candace Too, who Does He's a sedimentologist, and he does, like, the physics of sedimentology, which I have taught two different classes out of his textbooks. Very interesting stuff. So he was the one that um, was the chief scientist on getting this core um, through all these different evaporites. And it's really neat the variety because you say evaporites and i think you and i both probably think of a very <laughs> you know not homogeneous but close to homogeneous group of rocks and yet the devil is in the details here in terms of there's a lot of thing a lot of um different faces within here that provide definite evidence that the mediterranean was desiccated more than one time
1: have you ever been to the kansas underground salt museum
0: oh no i have a i all of my all of my friends have <laughs> i've seen videos like throughout the whole thing but i've never been
1: that's what i think of when i think of evaporates you're driving in this little battery powered golf cart <laughs> through miles and miles of things that look identical
0: right I mean, there are some layers in there, but they're, they're identical packages of the same layer over and over again. Exactly. Right? <laughs>
1: and fun, fun trivia, too. You know, last week we decided that I was good at trivia, just trivia that nobody cared about. <laughs> the, those that are involved with the deep-sea drilling program or IODP or ODP or the various incarnations of the deep-sea drilling program over the years may have sailed on or know of the JR, mm. that pretty classic research ship that's still used extensively. Mm-hmm. Yep. Its predecessor is the one that drilled this core, the Glomar Challenger. And the Challenger was scrapped in the early 80s, and then the J.R. came, I think, about 85 or so.
0: Oh, man, that's, just, that's the one that's still going, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, the JR is still going.
0: Wow. Mm.
1: 85 is not that old, Shannon.
0: For for a ship? I mean it's not that old for people, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard
1: anybody say, Well, in ship years <laughs> I'm seven.
0: It's because I just read this book about this yeah, about this ship these shipping containers that went down or shipping container carrying ships that went down during this hurricane. And they were saying these were Ancient, and they were made in the 90s. And I thought, I don't like this book. That's what I thought. Right. (laughs) Anyway, if you're going around in these crusty, salty waters, you would think that they need to be more updated. But anyway, (laughs) some of the interesting things that the uh, JR. predecessor, the Glomar Challenger, found when taking these drill cores, besides lots and lots of salt is the face. These changes were things like gravel. Okay. Well, that indicates that you've got some kind of channel deposit. If you have a bunch of gravels and how do you get a channel deposit in the middle of an ocean? Um, and then they got silts, stuff that looked like things from a floodplain, also indicative of channels. Um, a really cool one, they got potash, right? That's also salt, Um, but an interesting type of salt. And so when you look at those different facies, this is so hard to get across. To me, it took a very long time to understand that the difference between saying, okay, we're talking about a geological, like a sedimentary environment, like the Mediterranean. We've got some evaporites. All right, great. We have this idea of what the processes are that go on in an ocean, or in this case, this, you know, sea that's very cut off from the ocean. But then all you get for real to look at is this four inch drill core. (laughs) But
1: if you know what to look for, it can tell you quite a bit.
0: Right. That's exactly right. And this is what happened, right? So if you have gravels and silts, like how are these things are indicative of rivers. And so the Mediterranean is pretty cut off from the Atlantic, right? It's only the Strait of Gibraltar right there that is feeding it water, but also there's a lot of rivers coming into it. And water wants to flow to base level. Right, So it wants to flow where all the water is, which is ultimate base level, the sea level. If you were to lower sea level through some of the different ways that we'll talk about soon, you're going to have these rivers that are now going to be flowing farther out into what was the sea. And that's what you captured in this drill core where the river systems that began to cut canyons down through these huge evaporites. Right. Mm -hmm. And what else would you expect to see with a river system is besides those different bases like gravels or floodplain silts is you'd expect to see said structures too like crossbedding and they absolutely had that. They even had some Aeolian crossbedding so things that were blown from wind, and that certainly doesn't occur underneath the water, <laughs> right? So no, it does
1: not. <laughs> and there, was, there were things in that crossbedding from other continents right. that had been picked up and moved.
0: Exactly, which that is not unusual, but that's definitely indicative of an Eolian environment. Um, and so all of those pieces of evidence led to the fact that, yes, at least once and because those packages were repeated several times many times we had the Mediterranean become completely desiccated right and then it would get flooded again you'd have these salts and then desiccated again because you can still precipitate salt in water right you don't have to totally dry it up for all that salt to come out you just have to super saturate it saturate it for the salt to precipitate but these Other indicators, these sedimentary indicators, like these channel lags um, and these, you know, canyon infills definitely point to complete desiccation of the Mediterranean basin several times.
1: Right. Mm
0: -hmm. And the question, once you look at all these really cool rocks, right, there's even stromatolites. Like I said, there's some like animal, like mammal fossil, vertebrate fossils that were not you know, you don't get giraffes walking around or floating around in the water, right? So all these different vertebrate fossils that they found um, in the stromatolites, which are really like tidal zone, very shallow water, um, microbial things. They found all those. But they also, um, once you look at those different cyclicities, They also applied PMAG to this, which was really exciting, for me anyway. (laughs) Yeah, so
1: PMAG in evaporites is not something I normally think of.
0: Oh, no, not at all. Um, (laughs) So this goes to... Okay, we have this... The rocks don't lie. There are plentiful data saying that we have desiccated and rehydrated several times. But now why why did this happen how can we figure out what this mechanism was um i mean
1: our standard answer is the sun uh and if that doesn't work volcanoes so am i getting (laughs) close
0: (laughs) i mean sort of right (laughs) i tell everyone in earth history you could basically answer everything with heat and gravity you have to do the correct derivation but that's the answer to everything (laughs) Right. Um, and that's the answer to this too. So we looked at these cycles and we talk about tectonics, there's cyclicity in tectonics, you talk about climate, there's lots of climate cyclicity. I mean, we're clearly evaporation is way greater than precipitation during this time. So what's the climate? And then the other one, which is the large-scale one that's super fun when we talk about cyclicity, is to look at climate-driven cyclicity due to orbital parameters.
1: Milankovitch.
0: Yay! (laughs) Um, And so this is where the PMAG comes in, because if you're going to start to look at these kind of cycles, you're going to want to have a pretty high-resolution dating mechanism for this. So you wouldn't want PMAG. <laughs> Sorry. I said it before yeah. you could say it. <laughs> but you can look at the cyclicity in these samples and try to figure out, are there any signals related to you know, certain time periods? Because orbital cyclicity, we know fairly well, These Milankovitch cycles, and we've talked about these in other shows, so you should definitely go listen to those. Um, And you have to get an appropriate age on your units and see if that lines up with what the orbital mechanics of Earth were at that time. Because, you know, if the Earth's eccentricity, so how like elliptical its orbit is, if we're really far away or really close. It changes whether we're generally hotter or colder. And remember that Zanclean flood that ended it all is the beginning of the Pleistocene. And so we definitely have a lot of glacial things happening on Earth throughout this whole part of the Cenozoic. Um, so it's taking it takes a lot of different tools in the toolbox to try to answer this. And we actually still don't have any.
1: Right, so it's probably some like everything, in geology, somewhat unsatisfyingly. It's a combination of all of these things.
0: <laughs> that's true. Um, I mean, if you think about just tectonics, if you're just going to talk about tectonics, you said maybe it's volcanoes. Well, you know how you've got the Strait of Gibraltar, and that's where you're getting fresh Atlantic Sea, fresh, less salty Atlantic seawater coming in to the Mediterranean Ocean. How would you block that off to get the Mediterranean to dry up? You know, that's, that's kind of what the question is. Like, how do you block it off? Well, it's I not mean, super deep.
1: You got to fill it in or lift it up.
0: Right. You got to fill it in or lift it up. And tectonics can do that. And as we know, you know, from looking at this recent Turkey earthquake, this area, not just over there by Turkey, but... This whole area, the Mediterranean, is a, it's a nightmare of structural geology.
1: Yeah, these rocks have been through it.
0: Oh, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, we draw and we talk about, when we're talking about different plates coming together, we draw this very simplified version. But in this area, I mean, there's four plates right there around the Mediterranean, and then if you add in the Eurasian plate just north of it. You've got the Anatolian plate, the African plate, the Iberian and the Arabian plates, all right there. So that's a small surface area to shove all of these plates that are all moving on different times or at different rates. Well, what do you do with them? What does that do? And it's not a very simple, oh, there's just subduction, right? There's a lot more motion going on there than just simple subduction.
1: Right, because we know there's somewhere going to be at least non-inconsequential erogenies.
0: Right. Uh-huh. And
1: when you raise things up, you know you said gravity was the other answer, something's going to take them down. Mm-hmm. And that generally fills in the low spots.
0: Right, being the Strait of Gibraltar, potentially. So now you have this big landslide that could be blocking off the Mediterranean, and therefore, with no recharge from the ocean, you can cause desiccation. Right. If we weren't raising up the land, we could also be lowering the ocean, right? And, like I alluded to, glacio eustatic changes were mm-hmm. going on at this time. Like, we were certainly growing ice in the southern hemisphere. By this time, we're getting close to growing a pretty good ice sheet in the northern hemisphere, not all the way. But as those ice sheets grew, clearly sea level is going to go down, right? And we could have dried up the Strait of Gibraltar and the Mediterranean lost contact with that. So that's another thing. So,
1: yeah, either way, we can get this isolation that causes all these giant salt deposits. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: That in, Which
1: also has influenced the biota there a lot, too, because it's hard to live in really salty water.
0: Yeah. I, this is a weird... I think that if I were a paleontologist or even a biologist, I would be very into this extremophile thing. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. For sure. Like, this is really interesting to me. Um, some of my own research has to do with the Colorado River. And, you know, I'm just working on the timing. There's a lot of sedimentology and paleontology that goes into this that people talk about. And one of the things is, because they're trying to figure out in the lower Colorado River, is it dominated by fresh river water or is it dominated by salty ocean water? And you can look at the little forams that live there and figure out what this is. It's actually around the same time period. It's actually in the exact same time period um, that we're looking at. And that's just really interesting to me because forams are very ideal for this because their salinity tolerances are pretty small in terms of the, the percentage of salt that they will live in because they're these tiny little ocean thing or tiny little water things that float around and if you make it saltier or or take away the salt, they're either going to implode or explode.
1: <laughs> they're a very weird version of the Galileo thermometer for salt.
0: Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And all I think of every time I go to the ocean is, oh, how many amps did I just eat today? <laughs> a
1: lot is the answer. Yeah,
0: that's gross. <laughs> Super gross. Um, Yeah, so these extremophiles that live here or not extreme they've got to be extremophiles in the mediterranean because it is very salty and they talk about at times you know the the evaporites that get deposited it's like the dead sea you know it's so salty everything's probably floating on top of it and then all the water goes you see away see the name mhm <laughs> exactly so that's the i mean that's the shortened condensed version because i think that there's probably <laughs> I didn't even know I did it. (laughs) Oh, the condensed version. Because there's probably still a lot of fights about the causes of this. But you're exactly right. It's most likely a little bit of everything, which is a very unsatisfying answer.
1: It's true, but that is so often the case in geology.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we should just get more... We should just normalize this. We should get used to the fact that there's not one smoking gun. There's 50. And that's because everything's connected and you can't do anything else about it.
1: hmm Exactly.
0: hmm Yep. So, yeah.
1: Well, you know, speaking of everything being connected, <laughs> I think that's a great transition into everybody's favorite segment of the show. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay. I was hoping you were going to pick up on that one. I'm very excited now.
1: I, I've been cracking to get to this paper since we started.
0: Oh, So I don't know how near and dear to your heart this is. It is to mine, because I would get in trouble for this constantly.
1: I think this habit is gross. <gasps>
0: oh, how dare you? <laughs> well, so you guys all know what we're talking about.
1: <laughs> it's 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 second only to talking about dental work.
0: Oh my gosh, are you serious?
1: And that is cracking your knuckles.
0: Oh, man. I would have pulled even more papers <laughs> if I knew that you're <laughs> This is so funny. So I would always get in trouble because I am a consummate knuckle cracker, which as I get older, they don't crack as much, and that drives me insane. And I worried that maybe my mom was right when she would yell at me and say, if you keep doing that, you're going to get arthritis in your knuckles if you keep cracking them. <laughs>
1: But. So, does knuckle cracking lead to arthritis of the fingers? That is the short letter that you found for us. Mhm. And it's by Donald Unger of Thousand Oaks, California, MD.
0: I he also was traumatized by this warning and very early on in his childhood, clearly a scientist.
1: This is impressive.
0: <laughs> he said for 50 years he cracked the knuckles of his left hand at least twice a day but not on his right
1: (laughs) also how impressive as a child to go there is a potential to cause harm to my body and there's a potential for this to be completely bogus I am willing to sacrifice my left hand to find out which it is.
0: Exactly. I mean, so clearly we know Dr. Unger was right-handed. Right. Because he wasn't going to sacrifice that hand. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but, so he says, so 50 years of twice-a-day knuckle cracking comes out to 36,500 times on those knuckles. He said the right were only spontaneously or rarely cracked. And he said, after 50 years, no arthritis was in either hand, and there was no apparent difference between the two hands.
1: Ooh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, this is a very interesting, fascinating study to me.
0: Uh At the same
1: time, you have to go, well, sample size is one.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then you say, ah, it's a medical paper. They don't care about statistics.
1: Well, or (laughs) your Dr. Robert Sweezy.
0: Sweezy.
1: (laughs) Sweezy of Santa Monica, California. Uh Uh-huh. Who writes a reply that... He has also studied knuckle cracking, or KC. I love that it's got an abbreviation. I
0: know. You just got to do it. Like, come on.
1: (laughs) And uh, he consulted Dr. John Adams of the Rand Corporation. So that dates this a little bit. Yep. (laughs) And they do this little statistical analysis. And they come out to the conclusion that's no surprise. This is not a statistically significant sample. And they say typically sample sizes of roughly twice the available research budget are required for valid inference. Nice. I just loved that little, <laughs> nice little quip in there.
0: <laughs> oh, that's snotty, but that's good. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> yep. Uh, And they also cited that the co-author of a study they wrote was 12 (laughs) years old when they wrote the study, is now 22 years old, and continues to enjoy frequent KC without (laughs) manifestation of arthritis.
0: Frequent KC. (laughs) Uh
1: Uh-huh. Yep. In fact, it's possible that doing this provides a lubrication to the joints.
0: So that one, yeah. I might have forwarded that sentence on to my mother today.
1: <laughs> so, therefore, <laughs> managed care providers should consider if there is a distinction between knuckle cracking and joint health.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I like it. I think it's great, Dr. Sweezy.
1: <laughs> and people are going to be wringing their hands over this one for a while.
0: Ugh. Uh. I wonder what 50 year study I'm going to do. Whatever it is, I better get cracking on it.
1: Yeah, you better. I mean, TikTok.
0: Uh, crack, crack. <laughs>
1: well, if you if you've got evidence from your own study on KC <laughs> and its effects, I'm sure that doctors Unger and Sweezy as well as (laughs) Doctors Doolin and Lehman would like to hear about this. Not that kind of
0: doctors.
1: (laughs) Shannon, how can folks send that in?
0: Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And if you'd like to support these in-depth medical no statistics necessary shows that we do you can support us patreon.com slash don't panic geo
1: and until next week remember don't panic
0: it's not an exact science
1: was it in the world of kel words of kelvin if your experiment needs statistics you should have done a better experiment
0: exactly <laughs> man i love these medical papers <laughs>
1: Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.
0: I've been trying furiously to crack my knuckles, and I can't. They don't crack anymore.